Good morning, everyone. You're having a good Sunday. A couple more weeks till Christmas. Hopefully you've got your shopping in or not shopping. Amazon, whatever. Good to be with y'all. If you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with our call to worship. This is taken from Psalm 105. And this morning, our scripture passage, the sermon is coming from John chapter 6. And so hopefully you'll see a lot of language through the liturgy of bread, of um, manna, of all these things that we're going to look at in our passage today. So just be thinking about those things. I'll read the bold section this morning if you want to follow along after me and read the non-bold section. From Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Praise, Praise the Lord. Lord. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him 127, we'll sing one of our um, Christmas songs this morning. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I know these are songs that we sing a lot, but they have some of the most vivid and powerful language of almost any songs we sing. So let's think about that as we sing praise to our Lord this morning.
good to have Kendall's family here. <laughs> Always. He manned a lot. I bet. And it's good to have Ernie here this morning. Welcome. I'm sure everyone at one time or another has heard the saying, yeah, I've got first world problems. You know, you know what I mean? Here in America, we got it pretty good. And yet at the same time, we find ourselves not satisfied with all the abundance that we have. Even the poorest of the poor in our country, compared to third world countries, has more than, than is imaginable. Well, we, I know I, I could speak for myself, that I find myself grumbling more than I should with everything that I have. And I think if you read, as we read this Exodus 16, 2 through 8, hopefully you can uh, maybe recognize yourself in here and, and see where, where even back then it was... Uh, it was something that they dealt with back then. So, starting in Exodus, open your Bibles if you have them. Chapter 16, verse 2 through 8. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died. By the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. In our prayer of confession, if you would all pray this along with me as I read along. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning confessing our ungratefulness and pride. How often do we grumble and complain, forgetting to give thanks not only for our daily bread that you provide, but the life-giving bread from heaven your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe and trust in Him and not despise the true food and true drink from heaven. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to feed on Christ. Amen. Please turn to hymn number 107. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And the second verse of this song, it was just making me think about our prayer of confession. It talks about how Christ has given himself for all of us so we can have heavenly food. Um, pretty awesome. So.
Chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall, take, you shall each take an omen according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your provision to us even in the midst of our grumbling and complaining and our lack of contentment, Lord, you yet provide us with what is needed. Not too little, not too much. Father, may we step in that contentment. May we walk in that contentment, Lord, understanding and realizing that, that our provision is from you alone. Father, today my heart is a little heavy. My dear friend, Dave Ellis, who's on hospice right now, I just pray for his family. His struggles here on earth is about to be done. And his next step will be with you. And there's, there's a lot of pleasure in that, Lord. Father, we, we pray for others who are suffering. Hannah, who's, who's sick with COVID. Uh, Blake, who's sick with COVID. 
Father, we ask that you would uh, provide protection from the rest of Blake's family, Lord, and, and Tina when she, she's home, just in case she didn't want to come and spread it. Father, thank you for being here in the midst of this, what they're calling a pandemic. We trust in you, we rest in you, and we know that you love us. We rest in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to get my bifocals fixed. While you're looking, <laughs> it would be really cool if we prayed for the people of Kentucky that, that had Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there any other besides Kentucky that got hit the hardest that you know of? Okay. Lord, we do lift up, uh, we do lift up Kentucky. Lord, to you, the, the people there, the entire cities, the entire towns that have been obliterated, Father, by the tornadoes. Lord, be with these people. Be with this community, Lord. Let them know through this tragedy your grace and your provision. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that. In our Baptist catechism, The question is presented, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? If you'd all answer with me. Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. We're looking this morning at a very famous passage, one of the only one of the only miracles that's recorded in all four gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. But before we get into that, it's important that we think about and contemplate why John wrote his gospel, right? We're six chapters in, and John has given us in chapter 20 the kind of thesis statement, or the whole point that he wrote the whole book. He wrote these things so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And John has labored throughout the whole gospel to show us that there's more going on than meets the eye, right? With Jesus turning water to wine. In John chapter 2. It wasn't just a party trick. It wasn't just a cool thing that Jesus could do. He was showing this new way of purification, not through the law, these jars of water that were filled up to the brim, but not through the law, but through his own blood symbolized with this new wine and the new covenant. Also in chapter 2, we saw him talk about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days. This is not Jesus just boasting about how powerful and strong he is. It's really him saying that he is the dwelling place of God among men and that by his death and resurrection, he would make a new people for himself. In John chapter 5, we saw this healing of the lame man and we saw Jesus use that as a way to show that Jesus is not just merely human. He's not just a good man that walked the earth, a good faithful teacher. He used that to show that he has divine power to heal a person instantly and that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And so as we come to John chapter 6 this morning, we talk about this feeding of the 5,000. We're going to see Jesus provide a very practical thing for these people. He's going to give them bread. He's going to feed their bellies. But we're going to see that there's more going on here than just external, physical bread. That Jesus is not just the provider of physical food, but spiritual, life-giving food, namely himself. That these, this is ultimately what John will call a sign. 
He doesn't use the word miracles in his gospel. He uses the word sign. That these miracles, this sign of feeding the 5,000 is meant to point our eyes not to the physical things that Jesus did, but to his person and to his work. That he is the great prophet, priest, and king. But we have to understand that rightly. And we'll see that the people in this passage fail to do that. So if you want to read along with me, we'll look at verses 1 through 15. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. But perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would bless this reading of your word, the hearing of your word, the proclamation of your word, and that this morning as we see this great sign of Christ, that, that you would help our eyes to not just look at the physical bread that Jesus was able to multiply to feed the multitudes, but that our eyes would see the life-giving bread from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see him and that we would believe that he is able to save sinners like us, that he gave himself for us, that we might have life, and that this morning we would trust in you and be transformed this morning by the power of your spirit. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. A very familiar passage, right? A very a one that we've probably read many times and maybe even heard sermons before about. And there's always a danger with familiarity. I've talked about this before, right? When we become familiar with something, we sort of know what to expect. Maybe it's Christmas songs. We just sing them and it's sort of in our head and, and we become familiar. And so we don't really think about what we're hearing, what we're singing, what we're seeing. And the same thing sort of happens with a passage like this, John chapter 6. And especially with this passage, we can often be prone to miss a lot of what's going on. A lot of the overtones or undertones that are in this passage, right? And so maybe you've heard somebody say very sort of surface level observations, right? Maybe they're reading this passage and they'll, they'll see Jesus bless the food and so they'll say, you should bless your food before you eat lunch and maybe God will miraculously multiply it or something, right? <laughs> so they take this verse, sort of pull it out of its context and it becomes a, a passage about how to pray before meals. Or maybe they'll look at the end here and they'll say, Jesus withdrew himself, right? And so if you're having a stressful time in your day, maybe you just need to pull back and, and withdraw like Jesus did. And maybe you need to do that. <laughs> but that's not the point of John chapter 6. And so we're going to see this morning that there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And a lot of that has to do with 
the Old Testament. So we're going to look at three things there. There's a little handout for you if that's helpful to take notes on. We're going to look at three things. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to look at the setting of this miracle. In verses 10 through 13, we're going to look at the sign that Jesus performs. And then in verses 14 and 15, we're going to talk about the significance of this sign. So we'll look at the setting, the sign, and the significance. So we begin in verse 1. We see the setting here. That this is after the events of John chapter 5. John chapter 5 took place in Jerusalem after an unnamed feast that was going on in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes north to the Sea of Galilee, the west side of the sea, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. And we see that there's a large crowd following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. In the other gospel accounts, we see that Jesus was healing the sick and he was doing all these signs. And so these people are following him. A large crowd of people are following Jesus. And he goes up onto a mountain. He's with the 12 disciples and he sits down. And this is kind of interesting language. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, right before the the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up to the mountain with his disciples and he sits down. It's a very similar language here. And then we get this final fact in verse chapter 4 that this was the time of the Passover. The time of the Passover. This feast of the Jews. And so maybe you're reading this passage before and it's easy to just sort of hear these details. Okay, we kind of have a picture of what's going on. And we miss a lot of what I think John is trying to show us. That this language of Passover was the celebration of God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. If you remember the story in Exodus, there's these ten plagues that God performs, saying, let my people go. And the final one is the death of the firstborn. And God commands the people to slaughter a a lamb, a spotless lamb, and they're to put the blood of that lamb over their doorpost, and God would pass over their house, and their firstborn would live. And after this Passover event, God would lead his people by Moses, the twelve tribes, through the Red Sea waters, providing for them in the wilderness, and leading them the journey to their promised land. And so this Passover was a meal that not only happened one time in the book of Exodus, but was a regular occurring feast that every year the people of the Jews would celebrate this Passover. And it was a meal that was to be kept regularly as a memorial to remember God's saving work for his covenant people. Does that remind you of any other meals that we participate in as Christians? A meal regularly kept to remember God's saving work for his people. Lord's Supper, right? So very similar there. That's not our point this morning, but just interesting to point that out. So this Passover event is happening in the land of Israel. And John here is doing something, whether we recognize it or not. He is portraying Jesus as this true and better Moses, right? In the chapter right before, what is the verse right before John chapter 6? If you look at John chapter 5, verse 46, he says, If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for Moses wrote of me. And this language of Passover, God leading his people through the waters, what happens next in John chapter 6, verse 16? Jesus leads his people, the disciples, through the water. He walks on water. And He's going to talk later in this passage about bringing down bread from heaven. There's all this language of the Passover, of Moses, of the Exodus, of food in the wilderness. John is not just accidentally putting all these languages here. He is trying to show us that Jesus has come as the true and better Moses. And if that isn't enough to convince you, the rest of the chapter should blow your minds. <laughs> And I've put in there a little handout on the back side there to kind of, if you wanted to study this further, you could. What we see in the rest of John chapter 6 is this amazing parallel between what two events in the Old Testament, namely what, some of what we read this morning in Numbers 11 and Exodus 16 and 2 Kings chapter 4. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we have Elisha, or yeah, Elisha feeding 100 men 
miraculously with just several barley loaves from a young boy. In Numbers chapter 11, we have a, a parallel account to what we read this morning in Exodus chapter 16, where God provides for his people, rains down manna from heaven to sustain them on their wilderness journey to the promised land. And as Daryl sort of pointed out this morning, what makes the story so fascinating is God had just saved his people from Egypt and they're complaining about this food that God is miraculously sustaining them with. And so we have a lot of parallels, and just to point out some of them, in both places, John chapter 6 and number 11, we have a question about the location of where this is going to come from. Where can we buy bread that these people may eat? And then we see doubt arise in the people around them about how are they going to provide for this multitude of people, right? Philip says 200 denarii worth wouldn't be enough. That's about $25,000. $25,000 would not be enough to feed these people. There's doubt about how they're going to provide. In this account, we also see these humble accommodations that just a young boy with some barley loaves comes, brings what he has. It's not much, but it's brought. Fourthly, we see this miraculous provision that out of these humble accommodations, all of the people are able to eat miraculously and not just eat, but eat to their full. And we also see in both accounts that there's some left over, right? There's not just a rationing of the pieces, but there's an abundance left over. And in both accounts, we see this grumbling despite God's provision. And we'll see that in John chapter 6 as well. So, all that to say, these accounts, one in the old, one in the new, God is doing something here. He has sovereignly orchestrated an almost identical account of what's going on. That is amazing. <laughs> that God here is not just accidentally putting these people pieces together. He has providentially, sovereignly orchestrated an almost identical account, an almost identical situation. This is no mere coincidence. So all that to say, John in chapter 6 is crying out the Passover, Exodus, Moses, bread from heaven, all of that is meant to point to Jesus, that he's the fulfillment of all these things, and hopefully we'll see that as we continue. So we see here Jesus is portrayed as this new and better Moses. The Old Testament shows us this, that Jesus is in control. This is not a surprise to him. He's testing them. And in both accounts, we see this doubt arise. Is, is this going to be enough? How will this multitude of people, thousands upon thousands, be sustained? So this is the setting that we have. And now we'll move into the sign. We see this in verses 10 through 13. Jesus tells the people to sit down. And we find out here that it's not just a large crowd, but it's thousands of people. Namely, 5,000 men, which would have been with women and children, maybe even upwards of 10,000, maybe 15,000 people are following Jesus and his disciples. And this is a great multitude. And this account unfolds in a very strange way. Again, if we've heard this many times, we're so used to it. It's so ordinary. It's, it's so plain. It's not fanciful. It's not smoke around the people. You know, it's not these flashes of thunder. The story just sort of unfolds. Jesus takes the bread. He gets, gives thanks. He distributes the bread. The people eat as much as they want, right? It's not rationed out. It's not like each person got a little piece. They eat as much as they want. Upwards of 15,000 people are filled to the full by five loaves and two fish. And it's so much food that when they're done, he tells the disciples to go gather the extra. There's so much left over that there's baskets full, namely 12 baskets, which in the scriptures is sort of a number of completion saying, there was an abundance, right? There was so much that they could fill 12 baskets full. And they've gathered them up that nothing may be lost. 
And if you blinked, or if you just sort of lost your train of thought as you were reading this, you almost sort of missed the miracle, right? As I said, there's no fanciful language, there's no grand thing that's happening, just the bread is passed out, and there's enough. And they pass it to the next person, and there's enough, and there's enough, and there's enough. And thousands of people are fed by this very small amount of food. There's no big show, there's no fanciful language, the people are fed, the people are sustained, with some left over. So this is the sign. This is the fifth sign that John records for us in his gospel, the feeding of the 5,000. And so the rest of the chapter is going to be this interaction between Jesus and the people, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of the day, and there's going to go into a lot of detail about a lot of different things. But we see it all stems from our next couple verses. The significance of this sign, it's really sort of comes to a head right here in verses 14 and 15. That the people who were steeped in the Old Testament, maybe even they saw some of the things that Jesus was doing and said, this looks a lot like Moses. This reminds us of what happened in the wilderness. This reminds us of God providing for his people. And they would have been reminded of Deuteronomy 18.18, where Moses says that there's going to be a prophet that comes after me that's greater than me. Moses said these words in Deuteronomy 18. He says, there's going to be a prophet that comes after me that's greater than me, and you need to listen to him. And so in Jewish tradition, people were looking for a prophet. If you go back to John chapter 1, the Jewish leaders of the day, they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Are you the person that Moses promised? And John the Baptist says, no. I'm meant to point to the prophet, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And so the people would have thought Jesus is the prophet. They're finally starting to get it. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. All of scripture is about me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they're about me. And it seems like the people are starting to get it. They're making these connections. Deuteronomy 18, this must be the prophet. This is the one that Moses promised. He's the Messiah, the chosen one. But the narrative shifts in a second. It totally goes the opposite of what you would think. Jesus, because he is God, has divinely recreated this moment in the wilderness, right? Sort of like you see on Facebook, people like to recreate family pictures from Christmas, right? When you were a kid, you know, you have the picture that you of you know, your family, maybe your cousins, and you try to recreate that picture. Something similar. Jesus is recreating everything that has happened almost verbatim in the Old Testament, almost 1,500 years later. And so we have to really ask ourselves, what was happening in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11? What was so wrong about what the people did, right? At a surface level, we see their grumbling. They're not thankful for what Jesus gave them. But what's really going on? The people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they desired the earthly pleasures of Egypt over the plain bread that God gave them from heaven. They would rather have the earthly pleasures of Egypt. They would rather go back to slavery, to the world, and they despise the plain bread that God brought them from heaven. And so Jesus recreates this moment, giving them physical bread that he miraculously multiplies. And they begin to recognize him as the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And we see that they try to make him king. They say, this is the prophet. This is the king. Let's make him the king. And should, in our minds, we should be saying, isn't this good news? They're finally getting it. They're finally understanding who Jesus is. He is the prophet, right? He is the king of kings. What's so wrong about what they're doing? Why does Jesus withdraw himself? Why does he pull back from this situation? Why does he leave? Why doesn't he want to become king? And we can begin to see why John has done it this way. Just as the people in the Old Testament desired the earthly, external pleasures of the world, of Egypt, in the same way they want an earthly, external king. They want Jesus to come. 
Look at the miracles he can do. He can feed us whenever we want. He's about to walk on water. He can do a mighty things. He can save us from Roman oppression. He can feed us whenever we want. He's going to make a great king for us. He's going to save us from these earthly people. He's going to feed us whenever we want. He can walk on the waters. What a great king Jesus will make for us. But they don't see it. They've missed the point. So Jesus withdraws. And we're reminded of John chapter 2. It says, many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that he was doing but he did not entrust himself to them. Jesus knows the hearts of these people, and later in verse 26, he'll say, truly, truly, I say to, you, me, say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You just want another meal, another king that's gonna save you from Roman oppression. You want earthly pleasures, earthly benefits. That's not why I've come. That's not why I'm here. I've come to give you the plain bread from heaven, namely myself. And we'll see by the end of this chapter, all 70 verses, by the end of the chapter, this great multitude has left Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. His teaching is too difficult. It's not what they wanted. It's not the picture that they had in their mind. And so they leave, and all that's left are the 12 disciples. And so as we step back each week and we try to contemplate what it is, what's the point of John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, we have to remember why John wrote his gospel. John chapter 20. He wrote these signs so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That the nature of Jesus' signs was to point to the reality. Just like the signs that we have out on the street over there, right? We have a sign that's pointing to our church. Come here, this is where church is happening. The sign is not where church is happening. <laughs> the sign is pointing to where our service is. And so it would be silly for someone to see the sign out there and go stand out by the road and wait for us to have church, right? That'd be silly to sit at the sign and think that that's the point. The point is the sign is meant to point you to the reality, what's really going on, and that's what we have here. This feeding of the 5,000 is not meant to make us say, look how powerful Jesus is, look how, look how amazingly he can just feed people. I mean, he's powerful and he can do this, it's no problem for Jesus, but that's not the point. The point is that we see the sign that Jesus performed and we see I need bread from heaven, but some that's not going to perish, that's not going to fade away. I need that man. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's basically what these people did. They missed the whole point of Christ's first coming. Yes, he is the prophet. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But he didn't come up to set up our earthly kingdom first. He came to set up a heavenly one. As we remember during the season, he's the lowborn king. He came in his humiliation. He took on flesh, and he had to go to the cross. His first coming was not one of external glory, where he's set on an earthly throne and giving rule and reign over the earth. He had to die. He had to suffer for the sins of his people. He had to give his body and his blood. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be shed this true food, so that we might not perish. These people missed the whole point of Christ's first coming. They missed the point of his signs. They wanted an earthly king that could, they, they were sign seekers. They sought after him for what he could give them, not for who he was. And Jesus exposes this here. And secondly, we can say with confidence that Jesus has come as the true and better Moses. That Moses was just a picture of what Christ would come and do. And it's not just that Jesus is like Moses or that he's better morally than Moses. He is the true and better Moses. Why? 
he not merely brings physical food to his people as he did in this sign, but he is sent by God as the life-giving bread for the world. Those are the words of Andres Kostenberger, commentary on this section. Jesus has come not just to provide physical food for his people, but himself. He is the bread from heaven. He is the bread of life. He's the one, as it says in John chapter 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is talking about us spiritually, not our physical hunger, not our physical thirst, but we all have a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. Everyone that's created has this desire, this hunger and thirst, but we suppress the truth. We deny that God is real. We deny that our sin deserves punishment. And Jesus is saying, everyone hungers, everyone thirsts, but I'm the one that's truly going to satisfy when you come to me, I can give you true forgiveness, true bread, true sustenance. I'm the one that's going to sustain you and satisfy you. Not the pleasures of this world, not the sin that we try to satisfy ourselves with. It is only through Christ that we are satisfied and sustained. And so I'm reminded of one of the great hymns in our hymnal. It goes like this. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. May that be our cry this morning as we come and feast upon Christ by faith and in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ that you have sent him into the world, not to set up first and foremost an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. That by the proclamation of the gospel, by the good news of what Christ has done for sinners, people are saved. They're satisfied and they're sustained on their pilgrimage, their wilderness journey, not to an earthly promised land, but to a heavenly one, heaven that you have secured for us by your death and resurrection and your now current session at the right hand of the Father. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that we would believe in Christ, that we would trust in him for eternal life, knowing that one day he will come again to set up his earthly kingdom, that he will renovate the whole earth, that he will consummate all that is. He will remove sin. He will restore our bodies, our fallen bodies, bodies. He will give us resurrection bodies. And we have a great hope this morning that whatever suffering we're going through, whatever sin we're struggling with, that one day God will restore all that is lost and broken. Justice will be done. And so we pray that this morning our faith and trust would be in Christ, in his ability to save us unworthy sinners, that we are justified, sanctified, and one day we'll be glorified by our risen Lord. We thank you for this bread from heaven that is ordinary. It's not, it's not extravagant, but it's miraculous. And daily you feed us by your spirit. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to the time in our service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as I said, this is a covenant meal whereby we remember God saving us from slavery, not to earthly bondage in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. That God has done another exodus through another Moses and has brought a new birth to his people. And so we come to this table and we're reminded that there's nothing flashy here. There's no miraculous thing that's going on behind me. This isn't miraculously turning into Christ's body. It's not miraculously turning into his blood. There's nothing flashy about the Lord's Supper, and that's the exact way that God's ordained it. <laughs> and that's sort of the difficult part for us, right? Because we like flashy things. We like entertainment. We like all these things. And God said, no, I'm going to meet you in these ordinary means of grace. I'm going to sustain you 
with this manna from heaven. It's not, it's not flashy, it's not extravagant, but I'm going to sustain you by it. And I'm going to sustain you all the way to the heavenly promised land. So as we come this morning, we've heard the word, and now we come to the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded that this is a meal for God's people. It's a means of grace that it's meant to nourish, just as this food nourishes our physical bodies, it's meant to nourish our souls as we're reminded of what Christ has done for us in the gospel, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we might have life, eternal life. And so for those of us that have trusted in Christ, that have been baptized, that have believed on Christ, this is a meal for us, right? It's not a meal for the strong, it's a meal for those that recognize their need. I'm not able to save myself, I can't forgive my own sin, I know I'm guilty, I know I have sin, and I know that Christ is a good Savior. This is a meal for you. If you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Christ, then Paul would warn us to, to not partake for fear of judgment, that to eat or drink in an unworthy manner is a fearful thing. And so we must test our hearts, we must examine ourselves. But ultimately, we come to the table rejoicing, we come thankful. We don't deserve bread from heaven. We didn't do anything to earn God's grace, and yet he has given us his gospel, he's given us this meal, and so we should praise him, we should thank him, we should say, Lord, I'm not worthy to come to eat, to feed on Christ, but yet you have provided for me with abundance. We can eat our fill this morning. There's no lack in us. God will sustain us by his spirit, by the gospel, and so we have great hope this morning. And so we're reminded of the words of institution. The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks, just as he did in John chapter 6. He broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That there is a past, present, and future tense to the Lord's Supper. We look back to his death. We currently proclaim the Lord's reigning, and we wait until he comes again. Let's pray for the supper. Lord, we thank you for this ordinary means of grace. We thank you for this meal that we get to partake of together, rem remembering our fellowship, not only with one another, but our fellowship with you by the Spirit. Lord, our minds are weighed down by the things of this world, by our own sin. And so we come this morning, Lord, confessing our great need this morning, our hunger and our thirst, knowing that you are able to satisfy us this morning. Not by physical food or physical drink, but by the bread of life from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be sustained this morning on our wilderness journey. May you sustain us to the promised land, heaven itself, where we will live and dwell with you forever. Until you come again, Maranatha, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. If you want to just form a line in the center, grab the elements, take them back to your seat. We'll partake of them together. Come as you're able.
remember that God provides, right? God provides, God has given us his gospel, he's provided this bread from heaven. And so each week we take, we eat, we remember, and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, we take this cup of wine, this cup of the new covenant, symbolizing Christ, the Passover lamb, whose blood was spilled, the perfect lamb, so that our filthy, spotted selves might be cleansed. So each week we take, we drink, we remember and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled and shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. Amen. If you want to remain, or if you want to stand with me now and turn to him, 209, we'll sing about God's great saving power in the gospel as we sing, There is a Fountain.
transition now to the time of offering in our service where each week we remember God's provision for us, not only in Christ, but in the earthly world that he's provided us with jobs and money and, and ways to provide for our families. And so each week, as an act of worship, we give a portion of what he's given us back to him, not because he needs it, not to earn anything from him, but out of gratitude and thankfulness for his provision in our lives. So let's pray for our offerings and bless them this morning. Lord, we, we thank you for all that your hand has provided. We are overwhelmed this morning by your great provision for us. We pray that we would come this morning giving our humble offerings, our humble gifts, as an act of worship, as an act of thankfulness and gratitude for all that you've given us. And I pray that you would bless these offerings, that you would use them for the work of your gospel here in Decatur and to the ends of the earth. We pray that people might be saved through the proclamation of your word and that you would sustain us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please sing with me the doxology, hymn number 13. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, of our Lord as you go this week. Amen.